Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about the upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. I'm going to be reading today from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 10 through 17, which will be our teaching text this morning. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed them. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed all those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we're in a a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. And there were about 5,000 men who were there. But he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave to them, then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is the word of the Lord. I now want to invite our speaker for today, Nathan Mladen. Um, in his day-to-day, Nathan is a senior researcher at Theos, which is a London think tank that seeks to communicate to the world how religion matters and influences society. He holds a PhD in systemic theology, so let's prepare to worship God with our minds this morning. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that introduction, <laughs> and, and I really don't need a really formal introduction when I'm at home, because uh, this, is, this is home. Uh, yes, you are not the service I belong to formally. My heart is with the East, but my heart is also with, with Central and with all of the uh, Christchurch services. Uh, it's really great to be uh, back uh, this morning with you. Uh, it's actually a very special uh, Sunday because... Um, Ligia, my wife, and I are both um, preaching in Christchurch uh, this morning. So Ligia is now with the, with the East crew, and well, I'm, I'm here. Uh, even though I would have really liked to listen to, to her preach, I'll, I'll listen to the recording. But no, it's wonderful to, to be uh, with you and to open up a passage of scripture that is really uh, close to my heart. Um, there may be some of you here who uh, know me enough to know that I am an avid sourdough baker. Uh, Now, it may be a bit indulgent uh, on my part, but I want to show you a little collage of of some of my recent breads. Uh, uh, Yes, those are the breads. There, the second one uh, on the left is a special communion bread I baked for the East service on Easter. You can see the little... uh, the stone that was rolled away and the cross. Uh, yeah, so I figured that, you know, if, if I can't show some of my breads uh, in a sermon on the feeding of the 5,000 with bread and fish, then when can I? So this was my moment, and I thought I'd seize it. Um, yeah, it's been just over a year ago, uh, around the time of my birthday, that I um, really started baking in earnest. And 
I must say it's like a magnificent obsession of mine. It, it turns out that I'm a fairly adventurous uh, experimental baker. I like to try new flour combinations, new hydration levels. That's how much water you put in the bread, and, and so on and so forth. I like to, to describe baking as an improvisation on flour, um, temperature, and time with natural yeast and magnificent bacteria. But enough about bread. Uh, you, you can tell, you know, I, I could go on. I could, I could uh, talk about bread rather than, than preach. Or I can do both, talk about bread and preach at the same time, which is exactly what this passage allows me uh, to do. But one of the things that I really like about bread, and now I'm into the sermon, I promise, is that it's, it's the quintessential staple food, isn't it? I mean, it's, bread is basic. It's simple, but it's also fundamental. Um, there's nothing like bread that can really bring a meal together. It can bring a family together. It can bring a group of friends together. Bread creates community. Um, and there's so much significance, cultural and biblical significance, to bread and bread breaking. Uh, the idea of sharing meals that nurture the bonds of community that deepen a unity and catalyze hospitality. There's really deep symbolism of bread in the scripture. I'm not going to go through it all. But if we turn to our passage this morning, I want to see with you what God truly desires. Uh, what he desires is to just be with us, to eat and to commune with his people to break bread with the world in the intimacy of his presence. Time and again in scripture, you notice that what God desires more than anything is to have his people back at the table, back at the feasting table. Uh, the table being the place of nurture and friendship and a place of openness, of vulnerability and intimacy. This is the heart of God. So let's just look at the passage a bit more closely and discover what does it mean to, to come to the table and what does it mean to partner with Jesus in feeding and restoring the world. But before we dive in, let me just give us a bit of background to, to set the scene for us. The disciples have just come back from their first missionary expedition. Jesus has begun to pull them into his mission and has given them power and authority to announce the arrival of the kingdom and then to show what the kingdom looks like in practice, tangibly, in the form of healings and deliverance from demonic oppression. And they've gone out into the surrounding villages and they had a blast and the good news was heard and people were healed physically, emotionally, and spiritually. A new order of things is being established now that the king has returned. The healing and the restoration of the world is, has begun. And at the start of our passage, Jesus is about to take his disciples, who are weary from, from the hard work they've done, on a little retreat in Bethsaida. And you will see a picture of Bethsaida. Um, and... He wants to, to take them away so they can debrief, um, help them draw the right lessons from their missionary expedition, and just to have a nice meal together, probably. But nope, that won't be possible. 
because there is a large crowd pressing in. How annoying, we would say. Imagine you're at the end of a busy week, maybe this very week, and you've worked really hard, you've delivered on your, your uh, tasks, and just as the clock strikes five or whatever time you finish work, a new project lands in your inbox, a new request comes in. That's pretty frustrating, right? But note, notice Jesus' reaction. He welcomed them. That's what the text says. That's what Luke says. He welcomed them. That's it. There's no sense of frustration in his words. There's just a pure, heartfelt welcome. And in a similar context, in Matthew 9.36, it says that Jesus looked at the crowd and he was moved with compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is a beautiful picture, I think, of God's generous hospitality towards the world, towards us, towards you and me. This morning and all of the time, in Jesus, God is welcoming you. He looks at you and he just welcomes you. So Jesus welcomes the crowd, probably to the chagrin of the disciples who are really hoping just for a chilled, quiet evening after those intense couple of days of ministry. But Jesus doesn't do that. He welcomes them, and then as is his habit, he teaches the crowd about the kingdom and then shows what the kingdom is about, performs those very signs, healing those who needed healing, as Luke puts it. And this probably goes on for several hours, actually, until late in the afternoon, the 12 approach Jesus. Now, you can probably um, tell how they approach him and how, again, tired and frustrated and where they are. And I want us to really slow down here and notice a few things about this, this scene. First, let's start with the positive. Even though they're tired, probably, and hungry, the disciples notice the need, notice the need of the crowd. And I think this is important. Um, they, they see that people are hungry and tired. Maybe they, they hear the stomachs rumbling. Maybe this, this, they see the to and fro uh, in, in the crowd. And they're not indifferent. They could have just went away uh, and, and said, you know what, Jesus, you deal with it. This is, this is not on us. We've done our bit, but they don't do that. They're not indifferent. They, they see the need, and they come to Jesus. This is a sign that they're actually maturing as followers of Jesus, as disciples. Because you see, the more you spend time with Jesus, the more you notice what he notices, the more you see the needs around you. You notice the cleaner on the train or on the tube that needs a seat after a, a busy day. You need a friend. You see the friend, um, or maybe not just an acquaintance, who needs a warm meal because they've just had a baby. You begin to see the refugee who has fled their home to escape harm. The more you spend time with Jesus, you begin to see what he sees and to care about the things that he cares about. So the disciples come to Jesus, and they mention the problem to him. And I think this is, this is it. This is the pattern. You notice the need, and you bring it to Jesus. 
But as soon as they open their mouth, it's downhill from there, unfortunately. Notice what they say. Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote uh, place here. Now, in a sense, they're absolutely right. They really were in a remote place and there were a lot of tired and hungry people. They identify the need and they come up with a sensible solution. Dismiss the people so they can go and meet their needs. It's a sensible, but it's an individualist kind of solution. What they're basically saying and channeling is the, the ethic that says every man or woman for himself or herself. You know, everyone sort your problem out and that's how we will move forward. How does Jesus react to this sensible but slightly off proposal? I love the way he reacts here. He's very abrupt and confronting. You give them something to eat. He doesn't even entertain their scenario, their proposal. He just says, you give them something to eat. Now, can you imagine how confounded, how uh, disarmed they must have been hearing this? I mean, come on, Jesus. We, we've just come back from this ministry session. We're hungry and tired, and we've seen the people. They are also hungry and tired. And instead of giving us some credit for noticing this and coming up with a solution, not just identifying the problem, you, you tell us to fix this ourselves? How? We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. Now here, they're actually being smart, Alex. They're being sarcastic with Jesus about going and buying food for everyone uh, in the crowd because they, they were trying to make it clear that there's just no way, humanly speaking, to, to provide for this need. It's absurd to expect otherwise. They just can't do it. Who has that kind of money to, to buy food for over 5,000 men plus women plus children? And they're right. The challenge is way too big. They're right to point to the discrepancy between the need of the moment, the challenge at hand, and their means. But again, they're operating from a scarcity mindset. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, I'm going to cheat a little bit here and bring in a detail from a parallel account to make uh, a key point. You see, this, this episode is uh, told in the other Gospels, and John has the most details um, in the story. So I'm going to go to John 6 for a moment. And if we go to John 6 and his account, uh, there are two, at least two other things that, that show up in this story. One, that the five loaves in question are barley bread. Now, as a baker, I'm interested in that. You may not be interested, but I'm interested. It's, so this is barley bread, not wheat bread. And I'll, I'll tell you why this is slightly significant. And the, the five loaves and the two fish that appear actually are a kid's packed lunch. Uh, a child has come up and has been brought to Jesus by Andrew, Peter's uh, brother. So we have here a child who gives up his lunch for others. And there is risk involved here. This, this is risky. 
the risk is that he won't eat and that he'll stay hungry. And I really love this. Um, this child, although he's not in Luke, but in John, this child gives us a picture of what faith in action looks like. You give the little you have, you make that sacrifice, you bring it to Jesus, and he multiplies it to feed the multitudes. In a different context, Jesus tells his disciples who were uh, fighting and bickering about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, again, operating with a completely individualist and competitive logic. He tells them that unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't want to idealize children and childhood, but it's fair to say that children have an almost limitless imagination and a huge capacity to trust. And I think this is what makes them extraordinary and also vulnerable. And if we link these passages together, we understand how the boy gives up his lunch, his loaves of barley and his two fish, because he sees the world as it truly is. He sees Jesus at the center, the one who can multiply his meager offering meet his need and the need of others. He glimpses that the world is actually marked not by scarcity, but by abundance. And just to be clear, there's nothing special about the five loaves of bread and two fish. The bread, as I mentioned, is, is barley. And here's what kind of barley bread looks like. Uh, this was the poor person's bread. This is, wasn't the wheat. The wheat was and still is more expensive than than barley, um, and the fish, and the fish probably were smoked, but you know they weren't fresh. They have been out there f the whole day. But it doesn't matter that it's barley bread. That the fish are probably a little stale by this point. What matters is that he brings it to Jesus. It's the generous sacrificial offering that unlocks the miracle that is about to happen. That is still the pattern today. So Jesus instructs the disciples to sit down and to split people into groups of 50. Uh, and here's just a painting uh, from a more contemporary painter showing kind of the scene. And let's just pay attention to the verbs here that Luke uses for Jesus. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, uh, he gave thanks, he broke them, he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. The result, they all ate and were satisfied. Now, there's a lot going on here, and, and we'll get to some of the, the nuances. But what is immediately striking, I don't know if you notice it, is how inconspicuous the actual miracle is and how matter-of-fact uh, the account is. There's no hocus-pocus, no abracadabra, no flashes and lightning in the sky. Jesus simply gives thanks. He prays the prayer that the Israelites would have prayed uh, around mealtimes. And it goes something like this. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. As simple as that. He prays that, he breaks the loaf, and he gives them. And actually, the verb there, he gives uh, them, conveys a continuous action. 
Jesus keeps giving the disciples the bread, who in turn keep passing it on to the rest of the people. So what Jesus is doing here, he is creating a community of sharing. You can almost picture um, the breads and the fish multiplying as they get handed down. There's a next um, picture that kind of shows you know, how bread is kind of uh, traveling you know, from hand to hand, and everyone eats and is satisfied. Everyone ate. All 5,000 men plus women plus children, Jesus, the disciples, including the child who gave up his lunch, and they were all satisfied. And at the end, uh, this intriguing little detail that the disciples go and gather the, the breadcrumbs into 12 baskets. Now, we don't have to go too deep into to the significance of this. The meaning is actually at the surface. It just points to the overflowing nature of God's grace and generosity. God's provision is, exceeds our calculations and expectations. It's what theologian David Kelsey refers to as God's extravagant abundance. You see, where Jesus is involved, there is abundance. And Jesus is involved everywhere and anywhere. With him, there's always more. There's breadcrumbs to feed the birds of the air. There's new depths to discover, new intimacy to experience. This is God's posture towards you. He welcomes you, and there is abundant generosity. Now, I want us to notice something here. It's clear that Jesus, who healed the sick, who restored the sight to the blind, who raised a little girl from the dead, he could have fed the crowd without bread, without the disciples, without the child's packed lunch. With a word, their rumbling stomachs could have been filled. With a word, they would have been satisfied. But that's just not how he likes to work. That's not his preferred method. He can do that. He's done that throughout history. The, the mystery and the amazing paradox of, of grace is that he prefers to partner with us. He prefers to partner with us faltering, weak, dittering, um, imperfect people. Small vessels, incapable of doing very much, but he still wants to partner with us. I love what... Henry Nguyen, uh, a spiritual writer, has to say about this dynamic. He says, the mystery of ministry is that we have been chosen to make our own limited and very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. We give the little we have, our own limited and very conditional love, in the form of our attention. Attention is one of the purest forms in which we can just love someone in the form of our attention, in the form of our attitudes of welcoming, of hospitality, and of course, in the form of our assets, attention, attitude, and assets. It doesn't matter how big or small these are. He can do with them much more than we can imagine in our relationships, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our communities. When we give we break 
the logic of self-interest and self-preservation. And we get caught up into this dynamic that actually powers the whole world, the dynamic of God's continual giving to and of the world. And we get to do this to partner with Jesus in meeting the world's deepest need to heal and to make the whole world whole. So zooming out, we've moved away from the disciples' fix to the problem. This individualism that basically says every man or woman for himself or herself. From this mentality that says there's just not enough to go around. Scarcity, this is the deepest truth about the world. And in fact, entire economic theories are built on this premise that there's not enough. There's not enough. We've moved from this. And we have been drawn into what Martin Luther King Jr. calls the beloved community. It is a community of sharing, of generosity, where there's plenty of gifts to go around because Jesus is the gift giver. But crucially, this happens through sacrifice. Someone, the boy, had to give up his packed lunch, had to risk staying hungry and offer what seemed like an insignificant offering to unlock the miracle. And it's that which Jesus honors and multiplies. You see, the sort of provision God wants to, to bring to the world is through partnership with us. We are not worthy in ourselves to partner with, with God. We know how, how, how not undependable, if that's a word, we are. But he has chosen us to pour blessing into the world. Needs around us are, are great. They're probably in, in, in your life. The challenges, especially kind of in today's world, uh, there's just so much going on. They seem insurmountable. And we are tempted to say with the disciples, but we only have five loaves and two fish. We only have this much time. We only have this much attention. We only have this much energy. Our assets are immaterial. You see, there's this really strong tendency to adopt this scarcity mindset. It probably has to do something with our kind of evolutionary past, you know, this competition and there's very little resources and you have to fight for it. But Jesus says, no, there's, there's something deeper than the truth that there is sometimes scarcity. There's something deeper going on here. And, and, and it's actually him standing and inviting us to bring what we have and watch what he will do. He shows us that we live in a world of abundance because he is at the center, the tireless giver of all good and perfect gifts. He will do much more than we can ask or imagine. All we have to do is bring what we have. He doesn't ask us to bring what we don't have. Just bring what you have. This is one of the most important shifts that we need to make as disciples from this scarcity mindset through to one of abundance, through sacrifice. So, who are you in this story this morning? Are you one of the people in the crowd? We've talked about 
the disciples and about Jesus' provision, but maybe this morning you actually feel tired and hungry and you're just one of the, the people in the crowd who's following Jesus, who's not sure exactly what's going on, but you feel drawn, but you're tired, you're exhausted, you're hungry. Well, there is choice food available. There's deep rest to be found here. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 say, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. So there is food available. We will have a time after this message to receive this food and be satisfied. But maybe this morning you are one of the disciples and you notice the needs around you because you are spending time with Jesus. The encouragement is to bring what you have to Jesus and see what happens. It is not the abundance of our resources that matter. It is our willingness to offer what we have. Even the smallest act of faith can have an outsized effect when it's coupled with the power of God. Faith the size of a mustard seed, two small copper coins in the widow's might, five barley loaves and two fish from a child. You see, in the kingdom, less is more. What you offer up in faith, sacrificially, unlocks abundance in the kingdom. Now, as a baker, back to where I started, there's nothing more satisfying than seeing other people enjoy your bread, especially children. Uh, just over a week ago, I was visiting some friends who have two small children, and I brought some bread. And I was very proud of it because I thought it was really one of my um, best loaves ever. Made with spelt flour, with figs and pumpkin seeds. Quite a, quite a delicious loaf, if I may say so myself. I should have brought some. Um, <clears throat> and the children were very hungry. They had just come back from uh, the nursery. And uh, they were kind of moaning and crying. And my friend decided to actually cut the loaf up on the spot and give it to them. And my goodness, they just stuffed their faces uh, with it. I've never seen anything like it. And it just made me so, so happy. And in that moment, I had this epiphany. And I said, you know, if I feel so happy seeing children eating this bread that I have baked, how much more does the father rejoice seeing his children partake of his son? This is a great mystery. But the Father delights in us having, partaking of the Son. Because ultimately, the breads and the fish, the, the, the breads that the child brings are actually a picture of Jesus himself. The bread of heaven come down to satisfy our hungry hearts. Because you see what God ultimately wants to share with the world is not just bread, not just a little bit of wine, but he wants to share himself, his very being with the world. In performing this miracle, inconspicuously, as we've noticed, Jesus prefigures his death. The boy in the story 
giving up his lunch? Is Jesus giving up his very life that we may be satisfied and be made whole? His body was broken for us so that we may be made whole. In John 6, Jesus explains the deeper meaning here. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Remember the verbs there in in the story. He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it. Those are exactly the same words he uses when he has his last meal with his disciples on the Last Supper. Luke 22 says, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body. This is my very life given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is what we get to do um, now, to remember Jesus giving his very life for us. And what we are about to, to do is also a way in which God is inviting us to taste and see that he is good, taste and see that there is more depth of, of beauty and of, of satisfaction with Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord, the bread of life, is good. We just pray for us as we prepare for communion. Father God, we, we are in awe of your generosity. We thank you for the many gifts that you give continually. We thank you that we, we get to be part of the family. We're, we're, we get invited at the table where we can share, we can be glad, we can, we can find um, meaning and belonging. We thank you for your generosity, Father. We thank you that you have drawn us up into your purposes, into your mission. And you have chosen us to feed us, to make us whole, and to make us your partners in feeding and restoring the world. What a privilege. What a privilege. We thank you, Jesus. You are the bread of life. You satisfy every hungry heart. We praise you. Amen.